This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. I go before you now. I stand beside you. I'm all around you. Though you feel I'm far away, I'm closer than your breath. I am with you more than you know.
Let's uh, still our hearts just a moment. Father, we, we are coming to you. As the song said, we're just coming to you and um, you're everything that we need. And Father, I ask that you would just take my words and that they would really be your words and just be with us during, uh, during this study of uh, 1 Samuel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we'll be looking at chapter 21, 22, several places there, so just keep your Bibles open. We are continuing our series that we're calling David, and the reason it's called David is because we couldn't think of anything else that was more catchy. And if you missed last week's lesson, I would encourage you to go to the podcast or, or get a CD or DVD. Uh, just try to stay up with the lessons that David is walking us through. Now, before we jump in full bore into our lesson, let me try to summarize it. That way, if I lose you or if you doze off, uh, you'll at least have the gist of the message. Today, we're going to discover a, a very basic but critically important truth. There are three conditions, and, and today we're going to be referring to them as giants. Three giants that have the potential to cause even the most committed Christians like you all of you, like me, to crash through guardrails that we set up for ourselves. And when I say guardrails, I'm referring to ethical guardrails. I'm referring to moral guardrails. I'm referring to financial guardrails. I'm even referring to professional guardrails. So again, three giants that have the potential to drive us beyond the guardrails that we've set up for ourselves. Here are the three giants, and we'll be referring to them time and time and time again. Here they are. Anger, loneliness, and fear. In fact, if you were to stand up this morning and say, you know, as I look back on my life, this particular incident was my greatest regret or my greatest failure, chances are it took place when you were... Angry, lonely, or afraid? That's the summary. Let's get into the details. As we look at David's life, there's no doubt that he was an, an incredible man. But not every part of his life was something to brag about. He had several big-time failures. One was very well known. It took place when he was in his 50s, when he was king. And, and if you were raised in church, you would immediately identify that as his affair with, with Bathsheba. That was a dark, dark time in his life when he was in his 50s. But the failure that we're going to discuss today took place when David was about 22 years old. Here's the background leading up to it. Following David's defeat of Goliath, as you can imagine, David became the most popular person in Israel. I mean, everybody knows his name. He is the 15-year-old darling of Israel. The young maids in the streets are making up songs. They're singing them about this kid. As a teenager, David has already reached legendary status. He's bigger than life. And as King Saul sees how God is with him, he begins to appoint him to lead other military missions. And the results were always the same. David would come back a victorious man. But it didn't take long until King Saul began to be threatened by David. And, and Saul began to fear that David would take the kingdom from him. And so 
he came up with a plan that he thought would make his kingdom secure. He decided to try to get David into his family. He thought that way he could control him. So, so King Saul offered his oldest daughter to David in marriage. But, but David's response is really fascinating. And, and you can read it in first Cham, uh, first Samuel chapter 18, verse 18. But he said, I'm not worthy to be the king's son. I mean, my, my family's not, not famous. My, my family's not rich. They're not an important family. And who am I to be part of the king's family? And, and he refused the honor. Well, when David turned down the chance to become the king's son-in-law, the people are like, this kid is amazing. I mean, he's got his head screwed on right. Well, some time goes by and Saul has another daughter, a a younger daughter named Michael, and, and she can't help herself. She falls in love with David. And King Saul hears about it and, and, and he's pleased because here's another chance to bring David into the family and therefore control him. But, but again, David said, Oh, master, I'm just a poor man. My family's from a little podunk place and I'm not worthy of that honor. And, but then Saul got an idea. And so he said, David, I I understand. I understand your hesitation there. If, If this will make you feel better, I will make it so you have to earn my daughter's hand. And Saul concocts an impossible mission that he thinks will guarantee that David will be killed by the enemy. And he says, David, to earn my daughter Michael's hand in marriage, here's what I want you to do. And by the way, this is kind of embarrassing and a good reason to send your child to kids' church instead of big church. But but he said, David, in order to earn Michael's hand in marriage, I want you to go and somehow, someway, and I'll leave the details up to you, but I want you to go and bring back the foreskins of a hundred Philistines. And of course, Saul was thinking there's no way that David will make this happen. He'll be killed doing this. And, and again, you can read this in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Well, David couldn't turn down the challenge. And so he accepted the challenge. And, and the Bible says he went out. And not only did he secure the foreskins of a hundred Philistines, David was such an overachiever, he doubled that number. Came back with the foreskins of 200 Philistines. Well, the people of Israel just couldn't get enough of David. But the more the people loved him, the more Saul hated him. And Saul kept sending him on these ridiculous missions thinking David would eventually get killed. But God always protected him. Well, over the next seven years, David is in King Saul's favor, out of King Saul's favor. And Saul would try to kill him. And then he would feel guilt. And so he would be back in Saul's favor and then out of Saul's favor, try to kill him again. Well, Saul's jealousy finally came to a head one night at dinner. Now, now dinner with the king was, was a big deal. It, it was an honor. And, and uh, of course, David, as the son-in-law, not only had the honor of, of eating dinner with the king, but it was a situation where the king expected David to be there. But Saul began to notice that when he was really mad at David and wanted to hurt him, David would mysteriously be missing from the dinner table that evening. And Saul would say to Jonathan, hmm, where's David? And, and Jonathan would cover for him and say, well, well, I think he's out doing this. I, or I think he's doing that. And that, that I think it's legitimate. Well, finally, one night at dinner, the whole family is gathered except for David. And, and King Saul loses it and he explodes and here's what the Bible tells us. And, and get ready for this. Just another reason you might want to send your kids to kids' church. 
I'm going to read this straight from the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. And you'll be thankful I'm reading this out of the NIV because some other translations get a little bit more graphic. But he says, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. And, and as I read that, I, I wondered if that perverse and rebellious woman was sitting at the table there. Makes you wonder if there weren't some marriage issues going on. And, and actually, back in those days, th- there were always marriage issues because there were multiple marriages. And so you, you always had a favorite wife. And by the way, you don't want to live in a culture where you have a favorite wife. And, but but that's, that's another story for another day. But he says, son of a rebellious, perverse woman, don't I know that you sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and, and to the shame of the mother who bore you? So Saul called his son Jonathan these choice names. And then he says, I know what's going on. You've sided with David. Well, verse 31, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. In other words, Jonathan, as long as David is alive, you will not follow me as king. The people will put David in. Your kingdom will never be established. And so Saul says, now send and bring him to me, David, for he must die. Well, Jonathan goes and finds David and he says, David, you got to leave town. In fact, it's, it's worse than that. You got to leave the country. Because my father is out to kill you. Well, again, at this point, David was about 22 years of age. And remember those three conditions we talked about, those three giants we talked about at the very beginning of our lesson? Anger, loneliness, and fear. Here we see David is angry. He's given and given to King Saul with no appreciation. David feels alone. He's been rejected by the man that he's risked his life for time and time again. And David is suddenly fearful for his life. And because of these three giants, David takes matters into his own hands. And he had lost that clarity that we talked about last week where, where David said, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. He had lost that clarity. And for those of us that are reading his story several thousand years removed from this situation, we're like, David, what happened to you? I mean, seven years earlier, as a 15-year-old, you were fearless. What happened to you, David? And I wonder if there are some people here that are watching us and And they're asking the same thing about us. You know, what happened to you? In fact, let's just really be brutally honest this morning. The truth is that probably all of us can look back on a season of our lives, and now that we're removed from that season, we see things more clearly, but it's like, why, why did I do that? Why did I go there? Why did I say yes to that invitation? Why did I take that first drink? Why did I spend that money? Why did I borrow that money? Why did I meet her? Why did I let him talk me into it? Don't forget the three giants. When we feel angry or loneliness or fear we many times crash through the guardrails that we've set for ourselves. 
So here's what happened. Let's move into 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Now, let me me explain this. During this time in history, Israel did not control the city of Jerusalem. And so the epicenter of Jewish worship was wherever the tabernacle was. And the tabernacle would be moved around from city to city, wherever it would be deemed would be the safest place. Well, at this particular time, the tabernacle was in a city called Nob. And, And so David goes to Nob and finds Ahimelech the priest... Now, understand that when David traveled, he generally traveled in a convoy. I mean, he was the king's son-in-law. He was a great military, successful military warrior. And, and, and so he traveled with hundreds of men. But here, all of a sudden, David shows up to the, to the priest all alone. And David was probably a little nervous acting and maybe he looks a little disheveled and, and that frightens a, a, a Himelech. And, and the Bible says that he was so frightened that he trembled and he asked David, why are you alone? Where are the men that generally travel with you? Well, here's what David answers in verse 2. The, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I told them to meet me at a certain place. Now, that was a big, fat lie. And just for the record, David is against lying. In in fact, get this, the the Ark of the Covenant, which was there at the temple, the tabernacle. Do you remember one of the things that was in the Ark of the Covenant? The original tablet of the Ten Commandments. So David is, is, is within walking distance, probably even a stone's throw of the original version of thou shalt not lie. But David lies anyway. Why is he lying? I I think you're starting to get it. The three giants. Fear. Anger. Loneliness. Have a tendency to cause us to crash through the guardrails of our lives. David lies to Ahimelech and says, The king sent me on a secret mission. And as for my men, I just told them to meet me at a certain place. And by the way, that lie to Ahimelech, we will find out in a few moments, would cost, not necessarily David, but that lie would cost Ahimelech his life and the lives of his family. Let's continue reading. David finds himself hungry, and so he says in verse 3, Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find, and... Well, I think by now, Ahimelech, I mean, he's not stupid. He knows something's wrong. And and, and David, the king's son-in-law, military hero, he shows up. He's hungry. Hmm. Verse 4. But the priest answered David, well, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there's some consecrated bread here. Now. Let me explain this real fast. Every Sabbath, the, the priests would bake fresh bread and, and, and they would put it on the altar before the Lord and they would leave it there on the altar all week until the next Sabbath and then they would have fresh bread and then they would take the old bread and the priests were allowed to eat the old as long as they were ceremonially clean. So uh, Ahimelech says, David, we don't have any normal bread around here, but we do have the consecrated bread 
If you want that, you know, if you've kept yourself from women, which was part of the process of of being ceremonially clean, he said, you can have it. Well, then the next part of the account is so fascinating. Verse 7. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. Now, we're going to come back to this verse in, in, in just a few moments. But remember this name, Doeg. Would you just say it to your neighbor? Doeg. Say it. One, two, three. Doeg. You didn't say it. One, two, three. Verse 8. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was so urgent. So catch the setting. David, the most famous warrior in the nation, shows up alone. He's hungry. Now he says that the king's mission was so urgent he didn't have time to get a sword or a spear or a weapon. Verse 9, the priest replied, this is so interesting, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, which would have been about seven years prior, is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want to take it, there's no sword here but that one. Now, the Bible tells us that when, when David beheaded Goliath with his own sword, he kept the sword as a souvenir initially. I mean, who wouldn't? But later on, we read that out of gratitude to God, David took Goliath's sword, dedicated to God, and gave it to the high priest. Well, right here in this account, it's almost as if we need some background music. And if we were in one of those churches where they play organ music during the pastor's sermon, that'd be awesome here, wouldn't it? But I would probably tell him, you know, just increase the volume a little bit. Because this is one of those moments like you see in movies where... All of a sudden, everything freezes. And then you have images of memories scrolling through that person's mind. But anyway, as the priest brings out Goliath's sword, can you imagine all the memories and the emotions that begin scrolling through David's mind? I'm sure David remembers as a 15-year-old walking down into the valley of Elah all by himself with nothing more than a sling. He probably remembers thousands of men lined up on both sides of the valley. He probably so vividly remembers looking up at that nine-foot battle-hardened giant that's trash-talking him and saying, I'm going to crush you and feed you to the dogs. But I wonder if David also remembers saying, Goliath, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord. But here's something else I wonder if David is thinking. I wonder if he's thinking, what, what happened to that 15-year-old kid that put his trust in the Lord? What, what happened to that young man that ran towards danger instead of away from danger? What happened to that shepherd slash poet who wrote those famous words, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me? Where's that kid? Where's that faith? Where's that confidence? David gets his bread. 
he takes Goliath's sword. David knows he's got to leave the country, and you'll never guess where he goes for safety. He goes to the land of the Philistines. Isn't that crazy? But not only that, he goes to the land of the Philistines with Goliath's sword. Doesn't sound very smart, does it? But it gets worse. In the land of the Philistines, do you know where he specifically goes with his sword, with Goliath's sword? He goes to the city of Gath. Guess who was from Gath? That would be Goliath. Isn't this story wild? And there he finds the, the king of Gath and he says, I want to join your army. I want to fight for you against my people. And of course, they don't buy it. They're like, no way. You're, you're David. You killed Goliath. Well, that's Goliath's sword that you got in your hand. Well, all of a sudden, David realizes how dumb this is and he panics. And, and, and watch what he does in verse 12. David took these words to heart and he was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Isn't this crazy? I mean, you should read the Bible. It's much better than Facebook. Much better than Walker, Texas Ranger. But, but David starts slobbering all over himself and, and he takes his fingernails and he starts scratching the doors. And in verse 14, Achish said to his servants, look at the man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow in here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? In other words, I've got enough fools in my court as it is. Get this creep out of here. So what does David do? Verse 22, David left, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 22, verse 1. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. That sounds like a good group. Positive, encouraging. I mean, you got people in distress, debt, discontented. These are quote-unquote high-character people, obviously. Well, thankfully, it's, it's in this cave where David begins to come to his senses. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 3, From there David went to Mizpah in Moab, said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until, here it is, until I learn what God will do for me? And that's the thing about David. David is, David at times is such a mess. But what, what separates David from a lot of the leaders in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and, and, and today is that when David messes up, he has a heart for God still. And he knows he needs to get back in the will of God. And that's a wonderful thing. But the problem is the damage has already been done. Remember when I said pay attention to this verse that talked about Doeg? Remember that? When David was with Ahimelech looking for bread and looking for a weapon, Doeg, who was the chief herdsman for King Saul, happened to eavesdrop on the conversation that David had with the priest Ahimelech. And, and, and as it is, when people are eavesdropping, most of the time they don't get all the details right. 
And Doeg heard just enough information to be dangerous. But he went to King Saul, and here's what he told him. He said, King Saul, I've located David. He went to Ahimelech for advice, and I I hate to be the one to have to tell you this, but, but the chief priest has sided with your enemy, David, which wasn't true. Doeg didn't hear the full story. But nevertheless, King Saul believed him. King Saul was furious. And he sent for Ahimelech and his whole family. And in verse 13, Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? And to save time, let me just kind of summarize what Ahimelech said in the following verse. He says, O king, David isn't in rebellion against you. He's your most loyal subject. And I didn't side with him against you. Don't, don't accuse me of this. This is simply not true. But the king wouldn't believe him. And in verse 16, it says, But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But listen, the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day, he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, children, infants, cattle, donkeys, and sheep. Very few people escaped the slaughter. One of them happened to be Ahimelech's son, and he fled to David, fell down at his feet, and he told David the entire story, and David is devastated. He's broken because he knows he caused the slaughter. And he admits that in verse 22, David said to Abiathar that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I, David is saying this, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Which leads me to say that most of the time our wrongdoing will affect other people as well. So as we begin our wrap up um, Let me ask you three questions. There will be a time in our lives when those three giants will strike. There will be a time when the giant of anger will push us to do things we know we shouldn't do. I think we could have all said amen. We get mad and our anger causes us to react in ways that we regret later on. There will be a time when the giant of loneliness will cause us to consider doing things that we have no business doing. There will be a time when the giant of fear will cause us to take matters into our own hands. And and instead of saying, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust, we put our trust in our own ability to handle it. And here's the question. First question. What is your loneliness, your anger, your fear causing you to consider doing that you know you shouldn't do? You know, maybe it's the idea of re-embracing an old habit or addiction. Or 
Or, or maybe instead of it being a what, it's a who. Who is your loneliness, your anger, your fear driving you to? Here's the second question. Who besides you will your actions put at risk? And can I just answer that one for you? The answer is the people you love the most and the people that loved you the most. I mean, some of you have known through personal experience with your family growing up because dad's anger spun out of control and you've been dealing with the consequences of that ever since. Or, or mom's depression just got the best in, uh, of her and was out of control and you've been dealing with the consequences of that ever since. So the question is, who else will be impacted by your personal decision to give in to the impulses caused by anger, loneliness, or fear? And then one last question. What advice would you give to someone who is in your situation? What advice would you give to yourself? Well, let me give you the advice that David gave. Not the 22-year-old David, but rather grown-up King David. He said this in a beautiful scripture, Psalm 9, 9 and 10. He said, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. So understand, it's not a chemical. It's not alcohol. It's not an affair. Not buying a bunch of stuff. Not a new car. Not a new house. Not something else that you can put on a list. The Lord is a strong uh, tower. The the Lord is a a refuge. And, And then here's something fascinating. We're finished with this. A thousand years after this event, a thousand years after this event, David's most famous famous descendant who was actually born in the city of David would gaze into the eyes of some frightened, angry, lonely Israelites. And instead of saying, the Lord is a refuge, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28, he would say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. And without hurting the context or the integrity of the, of the scripture, if I could just tweak it, rephrase it a little bit to say this. Come to me, all you who are angry and lonely and afraid. And I will give you rest. So this morning, if you are in a battle with those three giants, and if somebody is looking on and saying, you know, what happened to them? I remember when they were so committed to God, and, but things are different. Something has changed. Could we come back to that stronghold? The refuge? Could you remember that if, if you are in a battle with these three giants, that the battle is not ours, but it's the Lord's. And so this morning, as we wrap things up, would you just be transparent with with God? And if you know you're just about to crash through some of those guardrails that you have set up for yourself, maybe you want to just come to Jesus with your anger, your loneliness, your fear, and He will give you rest. Would you bow your heads, please? Maybe there's somebody here that would say, Joe, God has spoken to me this morning, and 
would you just pray for me? Anybody lift a hand? Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand and your hand. Anyone else? God has spoken to me today. Would you pray for me? Father, I, I want to thank you for your word. God, I would just ask you that, Lord, there may be some here that have already crashed through guardrails. Lord, I pray that they would come back to God. Lord, I know what Satan does. He tries to overwhelm us with anger, fear, loneliness. But I pray that we would come to you as our stronghold, our our refuge in times of distress. Father, I pray forgiveness for those times that we've crashed through guardrails and we've taken matters into our own hands. Lord, I'll admit this week was a tough week for me, but it's because you were part of this was born out of just my own life. And God, I thank you for being so faithful. Lord, to just wake us up. And God, I pray that for those people that are getting really close to going beyond the boundaries that they've set for themselves, Lord, I pray that this would be the day that they would just come to you. God, I pray for those that are really struggling with moral principles. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling with financial principles and they're kind of following the world's view on finances, which causes things to be a wreck. Lord, for those that are just kind of embracing different things that the world is throwing out, and I pray, Lord, that we would just come back to the standard that's in your word. So, God, I thank you for your lesson and Lord, this lesson that's in your word, and I pray that this week you would just help us to consider this. And God, I pray that throughout the week we wouldn't be able to get away from your Holy Spirit just speaking to us. And and Lord, for the way that you're going to help us be better followers of Jesus, we will thank you. We will praise you. For it's in your name we ask these favors. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen. Can I just say before we leave, if, if you know, if some of you are struggling with some things, and I, I understand sometimes you just need to deal with it, just in your private closet, you need to pray. But sometimes you may need to work through some stuff, and you may need someone to kind of help walk you through it, and just kind of a, another person. And uh, if if we can be that person as a staff, feel free to call us here at the church, and we can either hook you up with somebody or walk you through it ourselves so uh don't don't try to handle this yourself let's let's be a body of christ helping each other thank you so much for coming you're dismissed you've been listening to the sunday morning message broadcast from church of god holiness in el dorado springs our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or dvd videos of the messages call the church at 417-876-2200 Thank you for listening.